0: You're listening to the Transforming India podcast, jointly brought to you by the Deepak and Neera Raj Center on Indian Economic Policies at Columbia University and The Times of India. I am Arvind Panagariya, Director of the Raj Center and Professor of Economics at Columbia. My co-host on this podcast is Professor Praveen Krishna. He is a Professor of International Economics and Business at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Praveen.
1: Hi, Arvind. Delighted to join you again on this podcast as we continue to discuss Indian economic policies.
0: To remind our listeners, in this podcast, we discuss how past policies have shaped the Indian economy and what must be done to create jobs and launch India into a high growth trajectory.
1: In our inaugural episode, we focused on the immediate reforms that the new Indian government could undertake in its first 100 days. But the urgent should not crowd out the important. This is an opportune moment for India to undertake structural changes to put its economy on a higher growth trajectory and create well-paying jobs for its young population. The topic we will focus on in this episode is exports. We'll discuss their pivotal role as an engine of growth and of job creation.
0: Yes, Praveen, historically, Every single country that has sustained 9 to 10% growth for two or three decades and has created a large number of well-paid jobs has done so by successfully competing in the world markets. In all these cases, which include South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and China, opening to the global economy has played a central role. As an example, China had a share of just 2% in global merchandise exports in 1991. Two decades later, this share expanded six times to 12%. Global markets are large, and they allow exporting companies to take advantage of scale economies, which help them bring the costs down. Exporting firms must also compete against the best in the world and continuously innovate better processes, products, and management practices to remain competitive.
1: It all sounds a bit like cricket, Arvind. It is playing in international matches and World Cup cricket that brings out the best out of top players like Sachin Tendulkar and Virat Kohli. Indeed, if India did not compete against top international teams, it may well not produce players like Tendulkar and Kohli, so competition is key. But unlike in cricket, a growth strategy centered on exports, or more generally on free trade, is sometimes controversial. Many in India see international trade as a threat to growth and jobs, and the most common fear is that opening up to trade destroys jobs put differently by opening up to imports to a greater extent, there is a concern that we will simply be flooded with imports and effectively just moving Indian jobs to exporting countries like China.
0: True. Uh, That is a common fear, Praveen, and that is a common fear around the world, not just in India. But it's completely wrong, both logically and empirically. Logically, in order to import something, you need dollars. Where do you get dollars? Well, you export. We export products for which we get higher prices abroad than what it costs us to produce at home, so we make a profit. We import products for which import prices are lower than the costs we incur at home, so we save on our costs. Therefore, trade does not destroy jobs. Instead, it reallocates them from sectors where the cost of production is high to those where cost of production is low. The same pattern happens in our trading partners. We reduce production costs everywhere and then benefit by trading with one another.
1: So Arvind, as you're saying, this is really no different from what households do. We specialize in activities that we do best, earn our income from that activity, and use the income so generated by buying what we need from others. Just think how difficult this would be if each of us were to produce everything we needed ourselves. We'd have to make our own cars, stitch our own clothes, and build our own computers. Absolutely. Now,
0: there is a fear sometimes that what if imports exceed exports, particularly by a large amount, then somehow the net effect of trade on jobs may be negative. But that fear also is, in fact, a bit misplaced because the central bank, in our case the Reserve Bank of India, has the instrument of exchange rate. So what the central bank does is to maintain the exchange rate in such a way that there is A balance maintained between exports and imports.
1: So it's not an accident that generally imports and exports move together. When exports rise rapidly, imports do too and vice versa. I think an important point here is that empirically there's actually no relationship between imports and unemployment. Between the early 1990s and the early 2010s, Indian trade expanded as never before. Imports as a proportion of GDP rose from 10% in 19, 1991 to 31% in 2011-2012 and yet the unemployment rate hardly moved paradoxically since 2011-2012 the share of imports in gdp has steadily declined falling from 31% to just 23% in 2017-2018 but the unemployment rate has actually more than doubled during the same period if we believe trade skeptics the fall in the share of imports and GDP should have reduced unemployment but the exact opposite has happened
0: so praveen on both logical grounds and according to data the idea that opening up to trade kills jobs turns out to be just as false as the idea that mechanization destroys jobs some critics say that with the rise of new technologies such as 3d printing and robotics manufacturing will move where customers are located for instance Advanced countries like the USA and Europe will manufacture their own products rather than import them. The scope for exports for countries such as India would be dramatically reduced in such a world.
1: I agree, Irvind. I think these fears are greatly overstated as well. The process of capital replacing labor and manufacturing processes has been going on for a while. Most products now need less labor per unit than they did 20 years ago. For example, textiles used to be a lot more labor intensive than they are today. Uh, But consumption levels have risen as well, so the overall market for textiles is now a lot bigger. More importantly, for machines to replace human hands, two conditions must be met. One is technical feasibility and the other is commercial viability in some of the most employment intensive activities such as clothing, we don't yet have technological feasibility. Robots remain incapable of handling soft material. And even if this becomes technologically feasible in the future, it will be a long time for the process to become commercially viable.
0: Interesting that you should say that, Praveen. Recently, I was reading about automation of shoe manufacturing, generally seen as one of the most labor-intensive activities. In 2015, Adidas opened a factory in Germany that has fully automated sneaker production except lacing, which still must be done by human hands. But what most people forget is that Adidas produces 360 million pairs of shoes every year, and only one million are actually produced using the automated process. Indeed, the Adidas CEO, Caspar Rorsted has said, and I'm quoting here, I do not believe, and it is a complete illusion to believe, that manufacturing can go back to Europe in terms of volume. He says that it is financially very illogical and unlikely to happen. So, as in the past, worries about automation are grossly exaggerated. Rather than freeze on account of such fears, we in India must seize the current opportunity.
1: That's really interesting, Arvind. Uh, now returning to the issue of creating jobs through exports, let's remember that global merchandise exports today stand at about $17 trillion, and India's share in it is less than 2%. So for example, just considering one industry, clothing, global clothing exports in 2018 were a gigantic $480 billion. And of this, India accounted for only $18 billion. Clothing is labor-intensive, and therefore there's enormous scope for India to expand its footprint in this sector and to create good jobs for its low-skilled workers in the process. I mean, not only that,
0: wages in China have been rising, and it appears today that uh, China will be quitting the market for clothing and similar labor-intensive products. And you know, just think of clothing market alone here, Asia by itself has more than four billion people. Think of the clothing needs of this very large population alone. Uh, even if you think in terms of two shirts per person per year, we're talking about eight billion shirts to be supplied. So, you know, this is going to be a very, very large market.
1: You're right, Arvind, that really is an enormous market. Now, let me ask you a different question. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of common fear about export-led growth strategies for uh, developing countries, which is growing protectionism now in advanced countries. Uh, The worry that this could lead to global markets shrinking, closing down. Um, How should India see this issue? Well, you know, Praheed, my own view has been that
0: India really does not need to worry too much about the global export market. Merchandise exports are about $17 trillion. On top of that, there are services exports. So we're talking of a very large market. Even if this market shrinks uh, in the next five to ten years, suppose, you know, rather than grow, which is what is more likely to happen, suppose it shrinks to, say, 15 trillion dollars. But if India could even raise its own share from the current less than two percent to four to five percent in the next decade, that would more than suffice for us to sustain a growth rate of 9 to 10 percent.
1: That's right. Now, there is this worry that US President Donald Trump has an ongoing trade war with China, and there's some fear specifically that India might become um, his next target. And so, if this happens, should India not be concerned then that now that India itself is kind of narrowly targeted, that its share in global exports shrink, or should it worry about this?
0: Well, this is a potential issue for India. But uh, I'll give two responses to that. One is that uh, we do need to use our diplomatic skills. Prime Minister Modi has an excellent team, and so we should uh, negotiate with the United States if uh, it comes down to a trade war in which India becomes a direct target. But I would also go back to a little bit of older history. Uh, Whenever exports have expanded from a country, there have been these kinds of threats uh, by the importing countries. In the 70s, South Korea was subject to these kinds of actions or certainly threats for its steel exports to the United States. In the 1980s, Japan faced a similar threat on its auto exports to the United States. But by and large, the experience has been that while there are these bumps along the way, the global trade has continued to flourish and it has continued to grow. So today, it is a very large market. And maybe we'll experience some bumps. But our real issue really is internal one. Can we set our house in order in such a way that we can raise our own share to maybe 4 to 5%? It's not a huge uh, ask because today, China has 12% share in the global economy, global exports. And we ought to at least have that kind of ambition, and so at least get to 4 to 5 percent of the global export market.
1: There's at least one challenge that I see in expanding our export footprint which is that all of India's recent successes in exports have been in capital intensive or skill labor intensive sectors uh, such as software, pharmaceuticals, machinery and petroleum refining. And to scale up our exports in these sectors, sectors that rely upon lots of capital or lots of skilled labour, resources that India does not have in plenty, this is going to be a challenge uh, without also rapidly increasing production costs. So just expanding our exports, uh, given our production structure or our export structure as it currently stands, uh, is going to be quite difficult, I think.
0: That is true. While we have uh, had good success in products such as software and pharmaceuticals, we should recognize that still uh, our share in the global exports of even these successful products has been relatively limited. And going forward, if we are thinking of uh, additional sectors which are of this characteristic, meaning either capital intensive or skilled labor intensive, uh, our prospects do not look great. Auto industry is one example, we have protected and import substituted in this particular industry for almost 70 years. Uh, In fact, we have never allowed imports of automobiles and over the 70 years, today where we stand, our share in passenger vehicles in the global exports is less than 1%. So clearly, the shortage of capital or scarcity of capital as economists call it, scarcity of skilled labor is going to be constrained if we want to rely on these products. What we need is to uh, uh, get back to the labor-intensive products as we have discussed uh, in this uh, episode earlier. That is where we got you know, almost 500 million workers. That is the abundant resource that we ought to make use of. And indeed, that is also consistent with our objective of creating good jobs for the masses.
1: That's right. I mean, there is another challenge as well, of course, and one that's kind of appears to be emerging now, and this is the threat of a policy orientation towards import substitution, where there's this temptation to ask, you know, why don't we just produce within the country the set of things that we're importing? Why don't we just do this at home? I think this is going to be a challenge as well.
0: Yeah, it, I'm sort of reminded of the history of South Korea by early 1970s after having opened up its economy in the early 1960s. Korea was already importing more than 30% of its GDP, meaning imports accounted for about 30% or more of its GDP. And that created a temptation uh, on the part of the policymakers that, look, you know, why don't we produce some of these imports at home? And maybe that would increase jobs and it will also add to GDP. And of course, you know, the history of that period is that subsequently in the following few years, growth rate in South Korea declined. And eventually, by late 1970s, early 1980s, Korea had to reverse its own policies and return to neutral set of policies giving full play to exports as well as imports and I think we are seeing something similar today in India where our own liberalization, the very much great success of uh, liberal trade policies have led to an expansion of both exports and imports. Now we are also importing almost 25% of uh, our GDP and this temptation has come to hit us as well.
1: Well, I certainly hope that we don't see more of this in the future, meaning a full embrace of import substitution because India, too, has been there before. By the 1970s, because of policy of import substitution, imports had come down to less than 4% of GDP, and we know what happened then. The quality of products suffered. Producers could not import high-quality inputs, and so they couldn't compete in global markets themselves. For example, we could not get world-class fabric, and therefore we couldn't produce world-class clothing. And so India's potential and the potential of our exporters was never fully realized. Everybody remembers as well, I'm sure, or knows that the, this period was characterised by very low growth, uh, not very many good jobs were created, and most of these jobs were also in the informal sector. So it was kind of a relatively dark period, uh, one to which I hope we don't return.
0: Indeed, we need to be very careful uh, not to lose sight of that particular history. We should remember that if we import less, We would also export less. Uh, That is a fundamental observation that we have both from data and from trade theory that of course also risks us returning to lower growth paths rather than launching us into a higher growth path which is what we seek through export-oriented policies.
1: And another thing to remember here is that we may not feel this kind of negative impact from import substitution immediately but over time it, it will catch up with us like it did in the 1970s. So I Kind of all of this is to say that I fully agree with you and the point that you made earlier in the podcast that domestic policies, what we do within India in terms of kind of organizing our own production and so forth, uh, will matter much more than the external environment in terms of being kind of a determinant of the success or failure of our export-led growth strategy. Well,
0: since we are out of time, Praveen, we will have to leave this for our next episode. Here, for today, let me just summarize what we have discussed today in this episode. First, no developing country has succeeded in achieving sustained growth of 9 to 10 percent for two or three decades and created good jobs without achieving success in export markets. India too can achieve these objectives by focusing on exports. Second. There is no basis for fears that opening up to imports would lead to a net loss of jobs. Empirical evidence simply doesn't bear that out. Third, fears that innovations such as 3D printing and robotics would return manufacturing to advanced countries are also unfounded. Fourth, by returning to import substitution, we risk compromising our growth ambition as well as creating good jobs for the masses in India. And finally, India needs to reform to expand its share in global exports as well as increase competitiveness in labor-intensive products. But we will discuss these things in the future episodes.
1: Great summary, Arvind, and this brings us to the end of this episode. So signing off, uh, this is Praveen Krishna.
0: And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca Magalwari at Insight at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.